Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Enslicht. Um, Did you make it to my house without losing a digit to the cold, Mickey? Uh, I, you know, I nearly wore gloves today. It was, you know, today was the first kind of really cold day. Although thankfully in a couple, a couple of days, it'll be warm again, hot again. So uh, thank you for your concern. I, I appreciate it. I'm worried about you. I, I was afraid that you were going to keep trying to wear sandals until it was like negative 10 and, and like lose a toe. <laughs> I actually, you know, my goal was to wear flip-flops until... October and I wore them well. Uh, October second was my last day, but I'm going to break them out. I think on Sunday. Uh, yeah, I, I'm impressed with you. Okay, so without any further ado, I would like to introduce our guest today. So joining us today is Deb Mashik. She's the executive director of Heterodox Academy. Before that, she actually had a long and successful career in academia. Uh, so she did her MA and her PhD in social and health psychology from Stony Brook University in New York. She was for 13 years in the psychology department at Harvey Mudd College as a professor. She was three years the associate dean for faculty development there. And then she actually left her tenured position uh, to become Heterodox Academy's first executive director in 2018. So Deb, thanks so much for joining us. and Welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. So we're excited to hear um, all about what you have to tell us. And we actually have a long list of questions. But um, this is a show where I, we... I'm glad I brought some questions for you, too. So great. Yes, we we're um, we're both terrified and excited for all of that. Um, but as as is tradition on the show, first, we have to discuss what we're drinking. So as the guest, would you like to to say what you're drinking first? I would love to. So there is a brewery down the street from me called Flagship Brewery. I've lived on Staten Island for 14 months and I haven't made it. So I went by this evening and I picked up uh, a couple cans of their Blood Orange IPA. And I'm, I'm very excited about this because having just moved from California recently, I've been really missing the citrus. And so when I saw that on the shelf, it was a, an obvious yes. That looks really tasty. Uh, what, what is the brewer brewer called? Flagship Brewery. Oh, Flagship. Okay. And uh, it's an IPA. So what's the uh, alcohol by volumes? What's the ABV? Uh, I guess those are probably things I should have uh, checked into before I popped it open. Let's see. 6.9. Oh, excellent. You'll be, uh, by the end of this, you'll be nice and toasty. Uh, that'll be great. Um, so I guess it's our turn. And Deb, I, 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 this is no insult to you or to Heterodox Academy by any stretch of the imagination, but we have... Uh, perhaps the lowest brow beer we have ever had on the show. Um, but it's actually, it was a beer we've been looking hard for. And in fact, um, one of our loyal listeners and one of my uh, current postdocs, uh, Caitlin Werner, um, you know, obliged us and she bought us this beer. And this beer goes by the name, literally the name is No Name. It's No Name Beer. That's it. No Name Beer. Uh, because we're in Canada, everything's in uh, en français as well. So it's uh, sans nom bière. That's all the information we have. Um, other than we know it's 5% alcohol by volume. We don't know if it's an ale. We don't know if it's a Pilsner. We don't, it's certainly not going to be an IPA. Um, but it's, it also, the, the packaging is uh, very distinct because it's like this ugly, ugly, bright yellow uh, background and just this kind of ugly font in black, black font. Um, it's a horrific uh, uh, brand, but it's actually kind of, it's the no-name brand for, I think, Loblaws, uh, which is a big grocery store here in uh, Canada. And we've been curious about it because apparently it's the, one of the cheapest beers around. Have you, have you sipped it yet? We no. have not. No, we're oh my about gosh. to. This is, okay. this is the moment. I can't wait. All right. Pins happening. and needles over here. All right. Uh, cheers. cheers, buddy. Cheers. Mm, that's totally inoffensive. Yeah, totally inoffensive. This could be a Labatt <laughs> Blue, yeah. uh, Molson Canadian. Tastes like nothing. Yeah. I mean, I actually wonder. Yeah, it really is bland. Mm. Um, but if we had this in a kind of fancy can, a, ta a tall boy with some kind of fancy label and, and kind of named like the typical ingredients in any kind of beer. It has hops in it, people. Um, do you think uh, we'd be fooled? We'd think, oh, this is actually pretty good. Uh, well, there's studies with wine enthusiasts, right, where they really respond to the bottle. And these are people who think they know what they're talking about. So probably, yes, probably we would be fooled. Yes. Otherwise, I feel there's more variability in beer. I mean, like there's so many varieties of beer and different kinds of beers. Uh, maybe not. I, I, I'm not sure we can ascertain quality as well, but like I can tell this is either a lager or possibly a Pilsner. That's about it. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, you're the expert. <laughs> <I guess. laughs> and Deb, how was your beer? 
It is delicious. It's it's very, very hoppy, um, but you can definitely taste the the citrus and the blood orange, and that makes me happy. It takes me back to California. Well, excellent. This this you know this takes me right back to downtown Toronto. Uh, you know, no hops or very little, not very hoppy, no citrus. It's plain. Yum. All right. Uh, well, cheers to that and to to cheap beer. And thank you, Caitlin Werner, again for uh, this is I think now. The second discreet time she has bought us beer. The first time was like, I think she bought like 10 beers from Belgium, super high quality beer. Uh, and this time she went like, you know, the first time was super high, this time was super low, but both were upon request. So thank yeah, you so by much. request, we were like, we can't find this no name beer. Like I, I went to a couple places and I couldn't find it and she managed to find it. So way to go, Caitlin. Wow. Yeah. And, and I'm guessing this is not a, a requirement of her employment as a postdoc or anything. Uh, well, I don't know. Like I'm Mickey's her boss, not me. Maybe <laughs> threatened to fire her. I, I, you know, I feel like uh, this is the last episode, I believe, or maybe not the last one, the second to last episode. Uh, we also received beer from a visiting student. So I'm worried now that students are going to believe that they must, you know, ply me with beer uh, to gain employment. Listen, it's not a bad strategy, uh, but it won't guarantee anything. Right. There wasn't an explicit prid pro quo, but <laughs> <laughs> it just was very clear what you wanted. Uh, you're making an impeachment joke now, aren't you? Uh, we're going to cut this. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that part. Yeah, yeah. Let's, um, let's, let's actually get started because we have so much that we want to ask you about. We actually have quite a few questions about your own background, um, and how you came to be um, in, involved with Heterodox Academy and to take the job that you now have. But first, uh, I'd like you to explain for those of our listeners who might not be familiar, what exactly is Heterodox Academy and what do you guys do? Thank you. So it's a, we are a passionately nonpartisan uh, organization. Uh, there are about, at this point, 2,900 professors who are members. And we think of ourselves as a collaborative. We've come together to improve the quality of research as well as education in higher ed. And we do that by increasing open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. So what does that look like concretely? Like, I. I love those things. Um, and I full disclosure, I think we're both members. Yes, I believe we're yeah. both members. Right. I got to say, my my commitment to the organization didn't go much beyond like filling out my name and a web form. Um, and I, I, to my shame, like I really don't know what you guys do. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to give you the, um, the organizational overview and interrupt because I sometimes get overly excited about this stuff. So our work is, so you just heard uh, the... The mission statement and in terms of the vision what we like to do is to bring diverse people diverse perspectives together um, and, and make sure that they collide so that we can improve knowledge um, that sort of thing in terms of how we do that work there are really four four general strategies the first one is we try to increase public awareness about why open inquiry matters in higher ed and we do that concretely through things like our blog the podcast half hour of heterodoxy by writing op-eds by supporting writers who are trying to get their op-eds placed and just by engaging in you know we go to conferences we present research and, and that sort of stuff um, the second bin is focused on creating tools and resources that professors and administrators on the ground can deploy locally to alter the context or to influence what's happening in their classrooms on their campuses or in their disciplines and the third bin is we try to find those stellar institutions those individuals those groups that are doing good work and trying to elevate them and celebrating their accomplishments trying to make their models visible to others um, so there are a lot of people on campus who are saying hey there's a problem but scratching their heads and saying we're not sure what to do about it and here we are in this fortunate place where we have this huge membership of people who are really innovating cool things and we can help bring bring awareness to their their work and hopefully propagate it and then the the fourth big strategy is really around creating communities of practice so for some people um, on campus who identify themselves as heterodox or as in a minority of some sort they they sometimes describe it as a very lonely place and they're looking to connect with others and so concretely to facilitate community building we do things like we have our big annual conference and we have an initiative called hx disciplines where we we create um cohorts disciplinary cohorts um so for instance there's an hx psychology group um, where we we try to connect people um, within the discipline so that they can do things, for example, like uh, put together symposia for conferences where they want to take uh, heterodox perspectives on on some topic. Um, so that's that's the overview of how we actually do the work. 
Right. So how bad is the problem, in your opinion? Because I, I think some people might feel that it's just like not a big deal that, you know, we can ask all sorts of questions and that there's not really a need for somebody to do what you guys are doing. So let's start by saying what what do we think the problem is? So are we are we using um, do we have a shared understanding of what the problem is? And some some people would say that the problem is, oh, you know, there are there are some speakers who are invited to campus and they're disinvited. And and that's a problem. Um, Some people might say, oh, you know, the, the problem is that you can't say everything you want on campus and people get upset. Some people might say, well, the problem is um, that there are, you know, that there are these safe spaces and that's just so objectionable. How we see the problem is is really um, one of the expression climate on campus around ideas and exploration of ideas in particular. So can, can questions be asked? Can um, different kinds of evidence be offered? Um, and are students and our professors allowed to follow that evidence wherever it may lead to to inquire to deepen understanding of the world? So that's the piece that we're really concerned about. Um, you know, I there's there's a lot of debate about whether there's a crisis on campus and whatnot. Um, our our view on it is the, the crisis is in the classroom. The cli- crisis is in the research labs. Um, it, it it evidences itself in our journals um, when certain conclusions are just are just not allowed. Um, so, you know, I, I actually, we have a, we have a kind of this order of questions, but I, you know, I want to just dig into what you said and I skip some of the, uh, some of the questions we have here and get to them a little bit later. But um, I think when some people hear the, the word heterodox, what they actually hear is conservative, right? So you're saying we want to increase, you know, heterodox views or we want to, um, uh, increased viewpoint diversity. Some people kind of code that as, oh, you want to increase the number of conservatives on campus, or you want to increase the number of conservative voices on campus. So is that correct? Is that a correct assessment? Uh, Thank you for raising that, because it absolutely is one of the um, perpetual misreads, I think, of the organization. So the word heterodox it stands in contrast to the word orthodoxy, which is the idea that everyone should be thinking the same and walking in the same line. So what um, when we talk about viewpoint diversity, what we're talking about is really simply a, a descriptive characteristic of a community of learners, whether that's in the classroom, in the discipline, on, on the campus, uh, of people who are approaching questions and problems from a range of different perspectives. And so you can think about viewpoint diversity as disciplinary diversity. You can think about it as experiential diversity. That graphic diversity and also also ideological diversity. And there you're thinking about things like um, perhaps political frames and frameworks, orientations, religious orientations. And when we're talking about viewpoint diversity, we're thinking about it very holistically, about how is it you can get ideas and people colliding together, um, kind of the iron sharpens iron, the ideas, you know, to in order to interrogate ideas and to deepen understanding. It's really hard to do that if you're only talking to people who already think the same thing you do. So then is it fair to, so I mean, you know, I think what gets most play again is this kind of notion of heterodox views or viewpoint diversity is uh, these are conservative views, but the way you've just described it, it could be uh, diverse views of all different kinds, including the kind of diversity that a lot of um, people who are very interested in social justice are also, you know, talking about. So for them, diversity means racial diversity. Um, It means ethnic diversity. So I, is, is this the same sort of thing? So, for example, w- uh, would Heterodox Academy be interested in increasing, for example, the racial and ethnic diversity of the academy because that's, uh, you know, white white people and maybe white men are especially overrepresented? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, thank you for reminding me that I didn't actually answer the question about, so does that mean increasing the number of conservatives on campus? Um, there, The data suggests that there are uh, overwhelmingly, um, or that, Liberal perspectives on campus are very dominant. So um, opening up the range of perspectives could include absolutely increasing the number of conservatives. Um, but this question of like the relationship between viewpoint diversity and other forms of diversity, that's one that we spend so much time thinking about um, because we see them as two sides of the same coin. Um, so for instance, we know that a lot of our, our Hispanic students, um, Black students, students from more rural areas are more likely to come from conservative, uh, socially conservative communities and families. 
And yet we know on campus, we're spending so much effort trying to attract that that very diversity and we welcome those students. And yet there are data suggesting that those very students are still not feeling you know, welcomed and as though they belong on campus. I can't help but wonder if part of the reason is that we're telling them implicitly or explicitly that we're so excited you are here, but please, if you could check your core belief systems at the door and not bring those in, um, that would be that would make it really more comfortable for the rest of us. Then you know, big surprise that people are perhaps feeling uh, continue to feel marginalized. So we, you know, we think about these as like if you want to solve demographic diversity challenges on campus, part of the way we do that is by opening up the range of ideological um, differences that are allowed. So you mentioned uh, a couple answers ago. You guys are particularly focused on the costs to, to open inquiry of having kind of a set of views that are outside mm, acceptable discussion. So I wonder if you can be a bit more specific about like what are the areas where you think that's particularly a problem? What are the sort of um, topics that are not being talked about uh, and that should be? So I had, um, I was really honored to be invited by SPSP, the Society for Personality and Social Psychology at the um, political psych pre-conference last year um, to to participate in in a debate and like I hate debates. I just, I don't find that a very, there's a winner and a loser and thank God they did not frame it like this. But one of the things I did in preparation for that was I tried to think through where, where are the different moments where bias or a a lack of ideological diversity um, could feed in. And I, I try to think about it in terms of our teaching, but also in terms of our research. So in the research side, um, if we only have, say, a, a constrained range of scholar ideas presented, that that influences, I'm just going to kind of go through the research process, like where I, where this can emerge. Um, the kinds of questions we even think to ask about the social world, the aesthetic world around us, um, the kinds of hypotheses we think to offer, the ways we think to measure, um, me- actually measure those hypotheses, even at the IRB stage. What kind? Of, if there is bias at the IRB stage, if I, as a researcher, put in, you know, my protocol saying, "Here's how I'm going to ask that question," and there's uh, somebody on the review panel who says, "Actually, the way you're asking that, um, I- I'm not okay with that. It's going to be, it's going to be offensive, and therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to influence your research by intervening at this moment." Um, on the behalf of, or on behalf of uh, people who I, I wish to advocate for, um, and then once we actually get those data, how we, you know, the the analysis we think to run, the ways we interpret things like odd results, the way we frame the results, and when we're writing, and now we've got this great paper, we send it out. The way the reviewers are experiencing our writing, um, the kinds of the the quality that they um, imbue, that they view our research having. Um, there's evidence to suggest that if they if what we conclude aligns with the reviewers' beliefs, um, that th- they're going to think it's a much stronger study than if it doesn't align. Um, and then once the paper actually gets cited, um, the ideas that actually get picked up and amplified in the media, and then the citation <laughs> ratings. And, and to me, is I mean, I come from a primarily as a, a teacherly background. Um, but for me, one of the the big concerns here too is like the people that we then inspire to become the next the next generation of psychologist or a scientist. So they're they're really I see like this big triangle where it just the 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 biases can filter in or filter down. And then over on the teaching side. Everything from like, how do we design a curricula? What, how do we, um, what themes do we bring into a, a curriculum on a campus? Um, what classes do we think to offer? How do we title those classes? The descriptions we're using to describe the classes. When I put together my syllabus, the um, the text I choose to bring in, the perspectives I choose to bring in, the assignments, how I frame those for the students, how I evaluate their writing and their their engagement with it, the questions I think to ask in discussion periods. Um, just it, it just again it filters down to to me to this point of like who do we inspire to continue learning and thinking about the world so all all different phases of our work i think um i think these biases can come in and that open inquiry can be truncated right so what you've described i guess it really applies to uh, empirical disciplines and and i guess social science particularly i'm curious 
what your take is on the humanities and there in particular like i know that there's been fights about like what's the core curriculum like are you are the kind of standard great works classes in the humanities skewed towards dead white dudes and i think there might be some people who would say historically we've overrepresented that one specific group of people and then what we're trying to do is diversify the syllabus and they might think that a group like heterodox academy is pushing back against that right so essentially you know conservative in the sense of we want to go back to the way things were in the 50s you know the way that we used to teach literature in the 50s or something like that what what would you say to a person who thinks something like that so a i think it's a great set of questions we should absolutely be engaging it and let's let's consider it and and have an open discussion about well, what are the pros and cons of teaching the dead white dudes? Um, what does it mean to, if you teach the dead white dudes, does it mean you can't also teach the many other thoughts and perspectives that are out there in the world? Um, and how how is can we as scholars and as teachers bring those texts into conversation with each other and use one as a lens for understanding the other? And um, and what does it mean to, to be able to experience a text as a text decontextualized? And what does it mean to experience a text um, as a, you know in the contextual space that it's in, in the time and the space? And what did it mean then? Um, and to me, these are really important questions. And I um, yesterday, I was at an event through the Teagle Foundation and Freeman Hrabowski, the, the president of uh, University of Maryland, Baltimore County, I wish I would have written down exactly as he said it, and maybe this is a common phrase and I just hadn't heard it, but he talked about the tyranny of the or and the possibilities of the and, um, and I really, that struck me, um, and I was thinking about it because then at the reception I was talking to someone about the the canon um, concerns, and and we were we came to this understanding. Well, it wasn't a very deep understanding because there was alcohol there too, and it was very loud and very quick. But we were exploring: is it necessarily you teach the white dudes um, or the the other many diverse contributing voices to society, or can you can you do it as an and? And what possibilities does does that open up when you approach it as an and instead of an or? Sorry, just to follow up on that. Um for one second. I mean, I think I'm generally really sympathetic to that idea, but at the same time, there's some resources that are sort of fixed pies, right? You can, in your, you know, humanities 101 classes, you only have so much room on the syllabus and then the fights are about, do you take out some of what's been on there in order to put in people who maybe have a less represented perspective? And it, it seems like that's what some of the really kind of ugly fights are about is, is what should go on list like kind of list that inherently only has so many slots. So I'm not sure how you square that circle necessarily. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think about the same question. And so in terms of, and one of the things I was hoping we can talk about too is that issue of who who decides which um, viewpoints are allowed onto campus or into a department or onto the syllabus because it, there is a limited resource. I mean, you can't have um, a department with an infinite number of dis or an infinite number of uh, sub disciplines represented. For example, you can't have a syllabus with an infinite number of readings, and so you have to decide. And I think um, in, in the case of like which texts get taught in a humanities 101 course. Um, I think the the professors who own the curriculum need to be honest about what the values are that they wish to, what the purpose of, of that course is, and align, and align the pedagogy accordingly. Um, I would hope, you know, for as somebody who I went to a public school in the middle of Nebraska, I didn't get to read um, those great texts. And I always feel insufficiently prepared to engage in some of the learning spaces that I find myself in where I, you know, I can't quote, um, I can't, I'm trying to think of some of the, the great big names. Like I, I feel like my, um, my education, my ability to, to be successful in some of these spaces has been limited because I can't do that. And I would hope to, to be able to provide my students with that opportunity. Um, so I want to go back to something you said earlier to, uh, I guess, you all's first question. And you're talking about the various ways in which uh, our, let's take a research here, like uh, as a psychologist, a research psychologist, um, how, you know, from the IRB to the questions you ask to how you study it, then the, the, the journal review process, et cetera. 
Um, I agree that those are all those points are places where there could be bias and they can actually kind of warp the research to some extent. But is that the case with, you know, the bulk of research in psychology that maybe is not politicized? So, for example, I study self-control. Um, it could be a politicized uh, topic. I don't think it is particularly. And you're right that there are biases that enter the IRBs, the reviewers, et cetera. But there are, you know, and people will kind of squash my ideas if it's not their ideas or ones they support. But isn't it the case that there's kind of an evening out, right? Where, you know, so, you know, I'm in one camp, but someone else is in a different camp. There's a bunch of different camps and we all kind of argue and hopefully we kind of approximate the truths eventually. Um, so do you think there, do you think this process you're referring to is still happening even in, let's say, areas that are not politicized, like self-control? So I think there are actually two really interesting subparts to that question. One, like, is it, um, are the concerns unevenly distributed across different sub-disciplines or different areas of research? I would say absolutely, because there are, you know, if you're talking about, um, race and equity questions or, you know, experiences of racism, that's going to be a really different um, sense of leverage, I think, than if you're talking about self-control or cognitive processing, um, though probably not absent is my guess. And then the other the other sub-question you had there is like, oh, but aren't we just probably all distributed, um, you know, across different, if you like think about all the departments, you know, across the, across the world, um, are we distributed? The, the data suggests we're not so you know that we're that there's an incredible if you go for just like the political ideology part um you know a, a really strong skew um and i guess I, I don't know anything about the self-control literature so tell me if are there different um i don't like theoretical orientations that are pitted against each other um i'm guessing there there are and so thinking even there about not just disciplinary ideological variation or disciplinary viewpoint diversity but theoretical um, op opportunities for theoretical engagement and co-engagement around shared questions? Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I, the short answer is that my field is a burning dumpster fire, but, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but for, for sure, there are different perspectives and people are arguing and debating um, all the time. And I think in a, in a, in a, some ways, a healthy way, even though it's kind of, like I said, it's a burning fire. Um, but, Again, because it's not it hasn't really been a politicized topic, I don't see that same kind of like self-censoring, the same kind of like let's say blackballing of ideas or people that you might get, for example, if 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 it's a if it's an issue that's a more hot button politicized issue, and and maybe more and more more and more of our topics are becoming politicized, but I I, I still think there's a fair share, maybe the majority. I'm not sure if you agree, Yoel, um, of psychology that's not politicized. So I think the other um, kind of the other interesting facet there is, you know, I've never been at a large R1, so I, I'm not trying to speak for that perspective. But from a small liberal arts school perspective, the scholarship was also such a, um, you know, it was a piece of what I did. But I, I wonder about the faculty experience, and maybe you can share some of your perspectives here in the the service area um, of the professoriate. So thinking here about like, what do your committee meetings look like, your faculty meetings, um, when there's a faculty governance issue or of a new policy that perhaps is, is you know, sort of working its way through the, the committees and whatnot. Um, so there you're kind of stepping outside of the research area, but it's still part of your life, I you know, as, as a professor. And I'm curious if you've, you know, bumped into any self-censoring there where people are having the the closed door conversations and saying things there that perhaps they're not able or they don't yet feel comfortable surfacing uh, in the in the big faculty meeting room. Uh, I was absolutely. I mean, we've we've actually talked about this this notion of self censoring uh, in one of our some of our earlier episodes, I believe. Uh, but I, I think you're absolutely right. So, um, I mean, I, I'm actually even scared to mention this right now. This is kind of here. Here is an example of me self censoring. I'm not sure, and maybe we'll cut this eventually. I'll, I'll just say it right now, and we'll decide later. Um, but uh, at University of Toronto, a massive university, uh, I think there's something like ninety thousand students across our, our various campuses. Um, huge place, and there was unfortunately a really, you know, it's, it's terrible that it happened. But there was a suicide uh, that occurred, I believe, last weekend. 
and it's terrible. It's terrible that it happens. And there were, I believe, three or four in the past couple of years at, at our university. Um, and the students are outraged. They're very, very upset about this. Uh, I understand it. Um, but you look at what the students are actually asking. They're asking for 24-hour mental health access. They're asking for the university to become, a, in a, some sense, a hospital. And I would, you know, you know, I've spoken to uh, clinicians about this who work on campus, and they're like, we are working extra hard, and, and it's really, really difficult for us. And we, we we've kind of become way more uh, offering way more slots, way more hours. Um, yet no one is actually defending the, you know, the, the people who are on uh, on the front lines, the actual, you know, mental health workers. And but they're afraid of the students. They're afraid of, you know, what the students, how they'll react and how they will, uh, you know, because you know, it's hard to say, listen, kids, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but suicides do happen. 90,000 people, you're going to have a bunch of suicides. Look at the, look at the, you know, the average number of suicides, you know, uh, a year. Um, and it's terrible. We want to prevent as many of them as we can, but they happen and uh, we're doing our best. But like, I, I, I couldn't say this and I might not say this even here. I'm not sure it's unpopular. If you say, you know, we're doing our best, then what the message heard is, is you're not willing to, to save all the students or, and if you start monetizing it and saying, well, okay, let's talk about the dollar figures that it would take to staff counseling centers 24 hours a day. Um, and what are we willing to give up? And you start talking then about cutting programs and then other people, you know, because it's not, it's not a, it's not, it's just an organization. I mean, you can't actually do all of those things simultaneously. And how do we have, we need to have an honest conversation in those decision-making spaces about what are the the costs, the benefits, what are the implications downstream, not just for the students, but also for the, the faculty and the staff and the administrators. And um, I, I'm having a hard time recalling where it was, but there was just a, a director of a mental health center who him, he himself committed suicide, um, thinking like like the, the consequences of these incredibly um, tense student experiences and it's incredibly sad and it's not it's not contained just to to student um student hurt and student pain and there are a lot of people on campus who need help and so how do you address that need within the realistic constraints of finances and time yeah i mean and this actually it may relate to an earlier episode we had about sacred values but a money on on a life is considered profane um Yet, to some extent, this is this is what it comes down to. Like we, we can only do so much, but you know you don't see you don't hear the university president saying this because he's scared of the repercussions. Yeah, so I'm curious how much um, if there is an atmosphere that makes people reluctant to say what they really believe. How much do you think that comes from the students themselves, and how much do you think it comes from other faculty or administrators? So when students are are being reticent to express themselves? No, like I'm I'm actually focusing on faculty here. Just following, you know, Mickey's example. Um it, this was very student focused, right? That's, the students will get mad. And I wonder how much is that like the key thing that people are worried about or are they worried about looking bad to their colleagues, to administrators who you know, hold power over them in some way, like which is the most important or, or are they all kind of in the mix? Okay. So I'm so excited that you asked this question because one of the things I was wondering if maybe we could brainstorm together um, are the different pressures on the faculty. So we have at Heterodox Academy, this campus expression survey, um, and it's totally designed as a student assessment to figure out who's afraid to engage which topics and why. Um, but if you actually want to understand the expression climate on campus to only assess students, you're missing a huge piece of the, the picture. So now we're developing this faculty version of the campus expression survey um, where we're going to be able to ask which faculty are afraid or reticent to engage which topics and what do they think are the consequences. So, Yoel, you just uh, touched on, I think, a couple possible consequences of, you know, my students are going to, you know, rake me over the coals in my teaching evaluations or um, my my when I go up for promotion, um, the review committee is it, they're going to pull out every tweet I've ever made, every um, every email I've ever sent to faculty dash L listserv. Is, is that, are those the kinds of consequences they're worried about? Um, 
I'll say coming from a, a small liberal arts perspective, the students, um, there's a lot of concern that if you um, say something um, in class that is upsetting to a student, it's going it, to, it, your administrators will hear about it. Um, th- there'll be discussions about it. Um, and I'm not saying this from, you know, a Harvey Mudd perspective, just from my having engaged with a lot of other faculty across different kinds of colleges uh, or uh, liberal arts colleges in different places. Um, so I think the student concern is huge. Um, I think in our research, I, you know, I hear at least our pre-tenure faculty um, as well as adjuncts, they're, they're concerned that, that, you know, they're going to experience backlash from, you know, they're not going to have their contract or they're not going to get promoted or it's going to be a harder, a harder crawl for them. Um, but yeah, so what are your thoughts? What are some of the other consequences that faculty are concerned about? Um, and what other spaces do you think it might, they might, pre- those concerns might pre- present themselves? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I wonder if the, uh, at least for me, it's, it's, it's a reputational concern. The concern about like oh people will perceive me as, as X now, so people perceive me as a conservative now. So you know we've expressed or I've expressed uh, a number of uh, let's say controversial opinions over the year and a half that we've been doing this this podcast. And at first it was really really uncomfortable for me. It was very difficult because I'm like oh people are going to think differently about me now, and I was really concerned about that. Just like this reputation, my reputation. Um, so I think for me, that's key. And the same thing with Twitter. So if I say, you know, uh, a number of impl- inflammatory things or not, it's perceived as inflammatory, but I just say, I express my opinion um, and it's not uh, the correct opinion, uh, then I will, I'll, I'll hear about it. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. How, so you said that that's been a concern that you had going in. Has that concern actually been realized? Like, have you received that sort of backlash? Uh, yes and no. So uh, yes, I mean, I do get, you know, if I, uh, I've had a number of tweets that have been, you know, criticized, you know, a quote, uh, quote retweeted, uh, you know, as an example of, you know, someone being tone deaf. So that doesn't feel good, but it's, that's a really small number. Um, but I would say, and this is kind of, I think, surprising to me, and I'm not sure you concur, Yoel, um, but if anything, I've had people come up to me and thank me, you know, thank me for expressing this point of view that they also have, uh, but they are too scared to speak about it. Um, so I'm not sure that's, you know, selection. So I'm, I'm, I'm getting more of those, the, the latter of them, I'm getting more of the people kind of, yeah, thanks for saying that. I agree with you, um, but I wouldn't say it myself. Yeah, so I, I agree. Um, that's the feedback I've gotten as well. I also kind of feel like, look, some of this goes with the territory, right? If you're going to be making arguments that lots of people disagree with, like some of them are going to disagree with you not very nicely. And that's just kind of how it goes, right? So I don't think of that as silencing. I just think of that as like being kind of predictable. Now, like you'd be like, well, in the aggregate, it just means that a lot of people who might not have a, you know, the opinion that's sort of the mainstream one and are like, I'll save myself the trouble, screw it. Like, I don't feel like getting yelled at, right? So it might have like, bad consequences overall in terms of like this kind of like pluralistic ignorance, this like kind of illusory norm, like the norm looks a lot stronger than it is. But like on the individual level, I'm like, I don't really want to tell people like, don't argue with people who you disagree with, right? Like I'm actually, I'm for that, right? So so it's a little tough to know what to do there. But then in, in terms of like, who's actually like really complained, this the strong complaints we've gotten are we've criticized somebody's research. They really don't like that at all. Uh, but on the political stuff, not so much. Uh, didn't we have a complaint on uh, a couple of weeks ago telling us we needed a third co-host that needed to be a, a woman? I don't remember anything like that. <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> uh, so we've had, a, we've had a little bit of pushback, but I think uh, mostly not so much. But you know what? Uh, I've, I'm out of beer. Uh, Me too. So let's take a quick break. And then I do want to hear, Deb, your perspective on this idea of these like tyrannical students, because like that hasn't been my experience. And I'm curious to hear what Mickey has to say about it. And maybe if you have some ideas of like where maybe that would be more common. This is the life that we live. No gun, no way. Rolls out, delivering keys, set like PNC Them boy phony, them boy they can't really G Never had ratings, them boy they ain't kept it trail Must have in C&P, 
Life on the net, but I see you G You're not B.A.D. I see you fooling them, you ain't fooling me Who was out following bad bees? Me? Trap, no sleep Made a living off of OT Me addicted to the money Red bottoms looking bloody They ain't really, really cruddy From the hood, I'm from the hood Fed say I'm no good, why? I was raised round crooks Bally on, who's on? Ski mask, face off All spirit, all soul All spirit, all soul Oh, spirit, oh, soul. Lie them, I lie them, I lie. They don't bust no sh, no way. This the life that we live, and most of them are them afraid. Lie them, I lie them, I lie. They don't bust no sh, no way. This the life that we live, and most of them are them afraid. Lie them, I lie them, I lie. They don't bust no sh, no way. This the life that we live, and most of them are them afraid. Lie them, I lie them, I lie. They don't bust no sh, no way. This the life that we live, and most of them are them afraid. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. Uh, so we're both on Twitter. You can reach the show at at four beers pod at mention us DM us. We'll both be checking that. If you'd like to send us an email, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. And finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can find this episode as well as our by now fairly extensive back catalog. Um, finally, if you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show. So thanks very much for doing that if you've done it already. Uh, Mickey was very pleased that a Listener, as instructed, said that we were better than very bad wizards, right? Yeah, made my day. So thank you, uh, uh, Noah, I believe. Yeah, Noah Stevens. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I, I, I truly appreciate it. I don't share this vendetta against the VBW people, but, you know, it makes Mickey happy. And so... God damn them! Happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, so Mickey, did I miss anything? Uh, no, I think you got it all. I'm, uh, yeah, it's all good. Wonderful. So, yeah. Can I can the- I just say I, I think this is the part of the show where I say that folks can find us at heterodoxacademy.org and they can join us on Twitter and on Facebook. And if you're an academic who cares about open inquiry, please consider joining us as a member. I got my plug in too. Woo! You're gonna get to plug again at the end. Sweet. But yeah. Why not? Why not <laughs> plug more than once? And we'll put all we'll put uh, the website information for Heterodox uh, on our show notes. So if anyone wants to join, learn more about you guys, uh, you can for sure. Yeah, that was that was very smooth. Though you just really just jumped yeah. Thank on you. That. Yeah. Um, so before the break, um, we were talking about different influences on um, academics that might cause them to not express things that they think are, you know, going to get them into hot water in one way or another. And you read a lot about students who are hypersensitive, who run to the administrators the minute somebody says something that slightly offends them. And basically, you know, you hear these stories of instructors being absolutely terrified of their students. And I read these and I'm like, I don't think you're lying, but I just like, I literally cannot relate. So, so when I teach, I mean, the last lecture that I taught um, in my intro social class, I was like advocating for sibling incest. I do that every year. Nobody ever complains. The lecture before that, I was talking, I, I mentioned the shooter bias task, um, which is, you know, like I chose racial bias, um, allegedly. And a kid came down, South Asian, by the way, during the break and was like, are you ignoring the fact that there might actually be different base rates of behavior associated with these different racial groups? Right. So they're the people coming and telling me that I'm like being overly sensitive. So I like I, I guess. I, I don't see it and I'm not saying like it doesn't happen, but it's just like it's not happening to me. Is, is it happening to you, Mickey? You know, it's funny that you mentioned this because I, I was you know kind of thinking as you're, you're talking and I over the years, I've gotten a few complaints from students. But if anything, the complaints were from more conservative students. Um, so I remember. Uh, number of years ago now, I guess it was in 2015 when Trump was still a ca- candidate Trump. And I was like, you know, just harping on how much I disliked him in my class. And, you know, I, you know, there were a few students were, you know, I was I don't want to say upset with me, but were, you know, called me to task for uh, being so one sided. Um, I think I remember in my early, early days, I uh, said something anti-religious. I said something that was, uh, I don't want to say denigrating of religion, but it, it was an anti-religious statement. And uh, clearly religious students came up to me afterwards and, 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 and kind of wanted to speak to me about it. So that was the kind of the extent of the outrage I've experienced. 
Yeah, that's interesting. Like we have a lot of visibly religious students, right? Like usually like it's observant Muslim women who are wearing like headscarves and stuff like that. So it's very apparent that if you're like religion sucks, you know, there's going to be a lot of people out there who are um, going to <laughs> not take that well. So what's, you know, you've been obviously talking to a lot more people than we have about this stuff. So what's your sense of um, where is this happening? How is this happening? Is it at some sorts of institutions more than others? Yeah, so I, I mean, now we have a, a reporting bias too, where I'm at an organization that enjoys hearing these stories. Um, so we have to be careful about, you know, just because I can tell some good stories doesn't um, necessarily mean um, the anecdote is true for everybody. Um, but there are absolutely stories like students just saying that there are eggshells everywhere. There are words you can't say. Um, it's it's you don't they're invisible. You don't know who you're going to upset. So it's better just to be quiet. So, you know, one of one of my students at one point actually said silence is safer. Um, and she was reflecting on, you know, I, I, that person was saying this thing that I totally disagreed with. But I, you know, I thought to myself, does it is it really worth um, the risk of saying what I believe, knowing I still have five semesters here? Um, if I say it, I'll be, you know, I'll be these names will come up. And then, um, you know, I have to live with that and I won't live it down for the next five semesters. It's just not worth it. So making a very conscious and I think very thoughtful and uh, decision to, to sit on the sidelines of her, her own learning there. And I don't how, how large are your courses? Like how many students are in a lecture course? Up to 500. Okay. So like my classes, for instance, were, you know, 15 to, to 30. Um, sometimes, you know, sometimes there'd be a really big class of 45. Um, but, but maybe it's a different context. And like, like in my classes where they were very discussion oriented, um, one of the, the concerns I have is that if, if, if those ideas are not bumping into each other, then not only is that student not having a chance to really formulate her own perspectives and, and put her ideas out there and have them interrogated, but the people that she's learning alongside, they're missing out on something too by, by have, getting a chance to hear another worldview or another perspective on it. But there are other, you know, other moments where it was really clear thing, things were happening. Um, I can share some of those stories, too, if you're interested. But um, I'm rambling. What was the question? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm a beer in. <laughs> would, I'd actually like to hear some of those stories if you're willing to share. Yeah. So one of my quote unquote favorites um, was uh, it was on a, a class on intellectual virtues. And we were talking about the, the importance of humility. And uh, and just as a little warm up exercise, we were going around the room, and I invited the, each student to um, share a phrase or a word that you could drop into conversation um, that would signal your openness, your intellectual humility. And you know, people were saying things like, "I could be wrong, but dot dot dot. I haven't thought about this before. Dot dot dot. This is the first time um, I've really played with these ideas, so I'm curious to know what your thoughts are." Um, here's how I see that sort of thing. And it, it eventually the, the circle moved over to this uh, first year student who hadn't had a chance or she had been reticent to contribute much in class. So that's one of the beauty th beautiful things about being in the round is it really brings all the voices in. And um, she said, I, you know, I, I could be crazy, but dot, dot, dot. And a student um, turned to her in, in what I perceived as a fairly aggressive way and said, I object to your use of the word crazy. By using the word crazy, you're, um, you know, you're marginalizing people with mental illness, especially black men who are disproportionately incarcerated for mental illness and not for crimes. And it was a, a cascade of claims that have some truth in them, but that were not relevant to this discussion. And even if they were, it, it felt very attacking and silencing of, of that other student. And, you know, in that moment, I mean, well, A, that, that student, the, the young woman, um, she didn't contribute again. <laughs> um, but B, um, I, as the professor who, and I, I try to have these very flat um, classrooms where I, I decenter myself really intentionally, like, you know, I'm not asking the discussion questions the students do that sort of thing. But there, I felt like I needed to bring myself back into the, to the middle and say, can we t does anyone have a different perspective on the use of the word crazy? 
And at that point, I was able to to share, you know, as, as a psychologist, and I'm not a clinician, but I've got friends who are clinicians. That, um, but we've talked about that word, and, and there's not a shared understanding um, about the word crazy, about whether you're allowed to use it or not, or whether it's marginalizing or not. And it could have been... Um, I was hoping to try to, to, to turn that moment into a very rich discussion uh, about the word and the assumptions we make about what's right, what's wrong, and, and whatnot, um, and we weren't necessarily able to, to get there. Here's one of the things I think um, when we're talking about the, you know, there, you mentioned, you know, these ideas of that they're overly fragile students or they're tyrannical students. I, I like to push against that and encounter it because I think they're coming from a good place. I think so many of these perspectives are coming from a place of care and wanting to take care of other students, take care of um, people who they perceive as more vulnerable. So I, I think he was concerned, and this was a toolkit that he decided to deploy at, at this moment that I think was actually counterproductive, both for his purposes and for the, um, for the education of the other students in the room. You have way more empathy and, 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 and compassion than, than I do, clearly. Um, that's that that's a that's a crazy story <laughs> to use that term again um so actually this might be a good segue to a, a question that i think both of you all and i have um which is um you know you left the cushy confines of a tenure track position in beautiful sunny california tenured, tenured. tenured. you're a full professor weren't you i was a full professor yeah there you go right and uh to, to be the, exec, the executive director of Heterodox. So, you know, uh, how did that happen? You know, why did you make this decision? And, and yeah, how's that been? Yeah, so I uh, was likewise a member of Heterodox Academy. And, um, you know, this was a concern, like the idea that people were silencing. And it was around the time of the... Uh, the, the Trump election, and I, I saw sensitivities on campus. I mean, people were feeling very vulnerable, I think. And, you know, I was in conversations with um, some of my conservative colleagues uh, for, across the colleges um, about what it was like for them. And, you know, and there was a lot of eye rolling, like, oh, gosh, we got to keep our mouth shut and whatnot. Um, and so that I had decided the day after the election that I was going to teach a course called I'm Right, You're Wrong. And it was a first-year writing seminar, and we re- we read um, Jonathan Haidt's *The Righteous Mind* and Thomas Sowell's *Conflict of Visions*. Like those were our two primary texts that we were trying to put into into conversation with each other. And I just loved, loved, loved this course. Um, but there was a student um, who actually has since committed suicide. So there's there's uh, some resonance there too. Um, who a senior who came up to me and said, "Hey, I would." Uh, really like to take the course. And I said, you you can't, you're um, a senior. And he's like, well, but you'll teach it to me as an independent study, right? And this, this in these small um, colleges, this is kind of what happens. I'm like, of course, I would love to. And it was in one of our conversations, actually, that he told me about Heterodox Academy. So I became a member. Um, and then I was sitting on the on the beach in Costa Rica with my dang cell phone in my hand. And an email comes across um, to all of the Heterodox Academy members from Jonathan Haidt. Um, saying they were looking for an executive director. And I, I read that email and I swear to God, it's like the, the sun got brighter, the sea started to sparkle more and something really hit me that this was an opportunity for me to go advocate for the very students I love, for the, the scholarship. I love the um, that notion of being the teacher scholar, of opening minds, of creating possibilities, of enabling you know, citizens and engagement and good parenting and innovation and all these sorts of things that we talk about we want our students to do, that I was like, I want to go do this job. And I, I knew it instantly. Um, I decided really within 30 seconds I was going to apply for this. And I wasn't looking for another job. I love, love, love my experience at Harvey Mudd. I loved um, my colleagues, I still do, my students, I miss them. And and I decided to, to pick up, make a cross-country move from California to New York. I'm a single mom, so I did it with my eight-year-old in tow. Um, and and here we are 14 months later, and I know it was the right decision. Wow. Uh, is this something, is, is this a forever job? Do you, do you see yourself going back into the academy at some point? I mean, you know, in, in many years? So, you know, my, my dream is that if we work hard enough and we activate on all these strategies that Heterodox Academy will put itself out of business, that there won't be a need um, for an organization to advocate for open inquiry in the academy. 
So if I'm successful with that, I'll be looking for another job. And I know I love uh, administration. I really enjoy helping other people be successful in their in their worlds. So I can imagine at some point, you know, going back going back into the academy. Um, the who knows? Maybe there'll be biases against me, and I'll you know I'll be um, unacceptable. We'll see. Have you encountered anything like that? Like personal consequences? Um, yeah, but in the sense of, I think they come from misunderstandings about what Heterodox Academy is about. So it goes back, Mickey, to the, you know, the point you made about, is it perceived as a conservative advocacy organization? Um, and, uh, you know, is it really this um, nefarious alt-right organization, which is not just conservative, but it's like it's got an agenda and it's not about, you know, we, we like to say um, that we're we're about process and not positions, um, but there's a view out there that we're about, you know, having a particular position or advocating for, for an ideology. Um, and, you know, I, I definitely have uh, friends who are like, what the hell are you doing? This is such a bad idea. Like open your eyes, see what, see what this is about. And that those are really difficult tear filled conversations about this. This is what the Academy is about ideas colliding together, making room for different perspectives, making room for, you know, learners of all sorts of all ages of all areas of expertise to come together and understand the world in a, in a deeper, more nuanced way than any one of us can do alone. And, and so to have that heart to heart and say, this is this is really what it's about, um, I think was was very effective. And, you know, the conversation continues. I'm, I've been in the gig now for, I guess, a year and a half. Is that possible? Wow. Um, you know, and the conversations continue. And actually, I've enjoyed those conversations because I feel challenged. Yeah, maybe related to that. Um, I was thinking today about the Trump administration and and Trump's Department of Education at least making noises about intervening to ensure, quote unquote, like freedom of expression on campus. Um, and I wonder how has that complicated your guys's work, if at all? Yeah, I mean, so there are administration challenges and then there are also um, other organizations that are you know supposedly in this space, but are are coming in to advocate for for very clear um, agendas as opposed to the process piece. And you know we're we're of the opinion that there's nothing wrong with the academy that can't be fixed by what's right with the academy, and that um, you know we all know as scholars why we got into the why we got into these areas. It's it is because we love ideas. It is because we. Um, value knowledge and knowledge creation. Um, you can't legislate that. You just have to, I think, just have to remind those internal academic stakeholders why these ideas matter and encourage them to to stand up, to be vocal advocates um, for open inquiry, to create their classrooms, um, you know, their campuses in a way where open inquiry can actually thrive. So, you know, we, for instance, we. Um, we don't take very many positions, but we took a position against the South Dakota um, bill saying that, oh, you know, you need to have X number of, uh, or, or like legislating viewpoint diversity. Um, that I don't think that's the way to go. I think, you know, academics know how to how to do this. They need to have the, the courage to do it. Um, so, yeah, so I mean, this, this kind of uh, association between Heterodox Academy and conservatism, I, I find that find, I find it quite disconcerting as well. Um, so, a society that we're UL and I are both members of, the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science. So, it's a, an open science society in in in, uh, in psychology. Um, there was a recent uh, kind of a small group got together who were interested in like uh, issues around diversity and inclusion, and they kind of just were just kind of brainstorming ideas, thinking about things. And literally their first point, like point number one, was we need to have a separation between uh, SIPs, this organization, and Heterodox Academy. And I'm like, these are orthogonal pursuits. These are, well, I, I suppose that's, that's debatable. I, I somebody I'll push back on that. But, you know, one is about view by diversity and, and one is about, you know, open science. And um, anyways, it, it bothered me that uh, they, there was a perception of them being at odds with one another. 
I mean, if anything, I think they contribute to one another, if anything. Yeah. So I'm smiling because, A, that's totally disheartening to hear um, as <laughs> those of us at Heterodox Academy totally value the open science movement so much so that um, – so we're hiring for all of these positions right now. And one of our interview questions is to the candidates, what do you see as the relationship between the um, – open science movement and the open inquiry movement um, and how do you put those into conversation with each other that um, if we you know if we want transparency and we want inclusion and we want a lot of viewpoints um, to to be allowed and a lot of different conclusions to to be allowed like you you've got to put them into conversation um yeah so I it's been you know I won't lie it's in my mind been the the biggest organizational challenge because I, I do think, um, viewpoint diversity has become very uh, po- polarizing and politicizing. Um, and and I think what it comes from is a conflation that if you advocate for viewpoint diversity, there's this cascade that happens in some people's minds that what you're really saying is all viewpoints are created equal or that all viewpoints should be welcomed on campus or that um, quality of evidence or quality of thought or mode of engagement somehow um don't matter. And, and it makes it really hard because there are people out there who aren't interested in engaging with the other side in good faith, um, who are just trying to troll or provoke the left, um, who are concerned first and foremost with advancing a particular political agenda. Um, so we, we have to push back constantly on this. And But we also have to push back um, against some people on the left who falsely point to those bad actors is somehow representative of the viewpoint diversity movement and and its intentions. Um, And doing so in an attempt, I think, to delegitimize the concerns being raised and to avoid making reforms, which is exactly what CIFS is about. Um, And so, yeah, I think we have to, all of us in the academy need to resist those bad actors. And we we can't cede the issue to them I, I, the stakes are too high. I mean, whether it's whether we're talking about knowledge creation, um, solving the world's toughest problems, or equipping our students with the habits of heart and mind to go out and to, to be the effective citizens, the um, effective parents, the the scientists, the policymakers. This the stakes are too high to to see the the rhetoric. Uh, Mickey, anything else you want to get in there before we wrap? I have one question that's on our list. Uh, I wonder if we've covered it already, but I'll, I'll go ahead and ask it uh, anyhow. Um, and this is this view, because you guys are called uh, Heterodox Academy, which you're contrasting yourselves with an orthodox view, right? And I started thinking about this a little bit, and how do we differentiate orthodoxy from consensus, right? So for example, uh, there is consensus among cli- climate scientists that uh, the earth is warming, uh, and that much of that, or at least some of that, is contributed by humans. Um, and one you could one could argue that's a now an orthodox view. That's the, that's the accepted view among climate scientists. And you know, isn't you know, don't we want to, you know, isn't that like a good thing? We have consensus in a, in a field, uh, and then hopefully we can then take action. So, for example, it might be a, a heterodox thing to do, which would be like let's invite someone who thinks differently. Someone who thinks no, it's it, it's not actually you know human caused, or they're actually the, glo- the globe isn't warming, etc. Um, so how do we differentiate between like you know, we've you know the scientists who are working in good faith have many of us have come to similar conclusions about a thing versus like there's some orthodoxy that is pushing out ideas that are preventing us from getting to quote unquote truth. Yeah, great question. So I think. Um that what we need to be mindful of here is that the exposure of falsehoods is itself enabled by heterodox ideas colliding together and by people being able to interrogate those ideas. So, you know, you mentioned like, would you invite someone who maybe says, oh yeah, you know, climate change not caused by humans. Um, Sure, invite them and then have the conversation um, together about that. Um, But there are, you know, one of the critiques that we always hear is like, well, are you saying there should be flat earthers in the geology department? No, because once, I mean, exposure of falsehoods move, move on, you know, it's like, we, we know that's not, not the case. And so um, thinking about the tools of our disciplines, thinking about the, um, 
the role of expertise. And here's actually another place where diversity, other forms of diversity fit in, like that notion of who gets to be the expert and which which sorts of expertise do we value and how do we um, have a, a more open and inclusive sense of, of who the experts can be. But um, what counts as, as evidence in the disciplines, what counts as reasonable argumentation and the role of other scholars in, in that interrogation. Um, we have we have disciplinary conventions um, and granted they're they're old and uh, you know entrenched in many ways and sometimes could use updating for example in the like the open science movement um, and, and that's a good thing but the I, I hadn't I hadn't framed it before is like the the difference between what's orthodoxy versus what's consensus and I think as I'm thinking about it the the, the big difference is, are we even allowed to ask the questions? Well, I think that's a good place to end it. What do you think, Joel? That's beautiful. Uh, Deb, thanks so much for your time. We know you have an insanely busy schedule. As a matter of fact, all of this back and forth with your assistant and whatnot, I just felt like such a lazy piece of shit because I was like, I don't do anything. Like, <laughs> you know. Wait, hold on. You're the lazy one now? I thought I'm, I thought yeah, I was. Yeah, like no, that. we're, well, we're, we're in a race to the bottom. Well, well in your, you know, in your free time, feel free to continue advocating for heterodoxy and, you know, share with your, your friends and colleagues about Heterodox Academy and uh, we're we're excited to to grow and to represent more perspectives and more voices. So oh, shoot. Thank yeah, you for the I, opportunity. I promised you another plug. Um, just one more time, if people want to get involved, where should they go to learn more? So please come to heterodoxacademy.org. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And um, we're redoing the website. So it'll be easier to find out how you join. So to help you, it's heterodoxacademy.org backslash join. Beautiful. And uh, hold on, I want to give a plug to the half hour of Heterodoxy. Uh, a, a yeah. Great, yeah, a great podcast hosted by Chris Martin, who I believe is the co-founder of Heterodox Academy with Jonathan Haidt. And uh, I listen to it regularly and I really enjoy it. You always say hate and it's 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 never hate. It's never been hate. Hate, <laughs> <laughs> hate, tomato, tomato. I just got to call you out on that, man. I, I find it offensive. At the conference we had in June, I shared um, a list of my personal growth moments over the past year. And one was that I, I no longer find public transportation totally intimidating. And another one is that I learned how to pronounce my board chair's last name. So Jonathan Haidt, not Tate. You know, uh, maybe in a year, Mickey will get there too. Jonathan Haidt, we love you. <laughs> no, he's just being a dick.